This is How to Read, brief conversations with brilliant minds. I'm Milan. And I'm Jess. Today, we're talking to Bethany Wiggin, a German professor who studies translation and environmental issues. We hope you enjoy the conversation. A Utopia presents an ideal world that has overcome the problems of the present. For the original Utopia, written by Thomas More in the 16th century, one of those problems was the division of land into public and private. More's solution was shared ownership of the land. But what sounded good in fiction didn't work so smoothly when its readers tried to make it a reality. German professor Bethany Wiggin shows us how utopian thinking shaped the founding of Philadelphia and how it clashed with the values of the Lenape people already living there. Bethany Wiggin, welcome. Oh, it's great to be here. So we're going to talk about utopias and we're going to talk about the environment and the connection between the two. But, um, you know, when, when I think of the word utopia, just as we use it in general, I think of like a sort of ideal world or an ideal society, but it's also a genre of writing, mm -hmm. right? So can you give an example of a, a utopian text that really exemplifies the features of utopian writing as a genre? Well, we could start with Thomas More's Utopia. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you know, it was written a long time ago, like 501 years ago, in okay. fact. Um, it just had an anniversary. It just had an anniversary. Great. So um, the reason why I think, even though that's such an old, old, old text, why it's exemplary of utopian fiction, mm. is that it, it really is speculative from the beginning. And it's full of invitations to the reader not to take it terribly seriously and yet deadly seriously at the same time and okay. can you give that, an example how that works so the utopia is in two parts the first part is a conversation between friends um, mm -hmm. in this instance they're you know uh, pretty well-off white guys who are on mm -hmm. a trade mission for um, the British crown um, or the English crown and they're in the low countries and they're negotiating wool contracts and things so that's are like the, where the Netherlands and Belgium is now, right? Exactly. Yeah. And they're all humanists. Mm -hmm. And in the great tradition of humanist Renaissance writing, they go to a garden and they have a kind of conversational game. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they talk about isn't really a game. It's about... Um, the reason that they are in the low countries is to negotiate prices for wool. Mm -hmm. And uh, they start talking about the wool trade and they start talking about sheep and the radical transformation of uh, much of Northern Europe, but in particular the English landscape, as land is enclosed so that owners of sheep can track them uh, grazing and that the so price of wool... So does enclosed just mean like fences being fenced put up? in. Okay. So commons, uh, commonly held land, being privatized, in effect, for sheep to graze and to be held as private property. And the conversation becomes quite interesting because despite these men's incredibly privileged position, they mm. have a scathing critique of the criminalization of poverty that has uh, happened mm -hmm. as 
Farmers who had been using land in common are being forced to leave that land and move to the city, um, okay. have been impoverished and are being treated worse than sheep, in fact, as they are hungry and then stealing and then... Um, and this was all really happening in Britain at that time? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And the environmental piece of Moore's Utopia really probably becomes most strong in that um, they really critique this chase of capital and the way that this is really impoverishing people and, and criminalizing those men and women who formerly were able to rely on lands held in common and, and its privatization being that which is impoverishing them. So that changing understanding of humans' relationship to land, I guess, is the environmental critique, as well as, so just land, but also the sea, you know, that this long distance trade, the way that that was uh, radically transforming um, really the planet and impoverishing English people, but also wreaking havoc on populations in, in far flung places. So we see these negotiators thinking about global trade and trying to think about it in a playful way. The play part comes in the second half of the book. The first part is this conversation about the criminalization of poverty and sheep and enclosures. Mm. And the second part, um, they say, oh, um, let's talk to this traveler who's come from a place which is also an island that's really far away mm. where they have figured out how to actually hold things in common and okay. don't care about gold the only gold that they have actually they make into chamber pots and people just pee and poo on them and that's what <laughs> the real use of gold is and yeah. then it becomes this speculative flight it's very tongue-in-cheek there's of course a deadly serious part where um, it becomes clear there is capital punishment in utopia and uh, okay. that part is quite not fun <laughs> okay. or playful yeah so it sounds like um, even with this like very first utopian text that it's in these two parts and one is describing the real world and then one is describing this kind of, um, well, speculative is the word that you used, the mm -hmm. speculative world. And does it make connections between those two or are they sort of, um, I guess I'm wondering, like, is that speculative world offering a solution to the problems that they're seeing in the real world? Well, you know, this is always the, the trick with utopia, right? Because mm. if you actually specify what it is, that's the part where the the danger comes in, I think. You know, the, what do you mean the by when utopia can quickly tip towards dystopian where the where the one person's utopia is another person's hell. <laughs> I would mm. say, you know, where things become really quite dangerous. Uh, you can't, I think, legislate utopia that that's you know people's ideas of the good life and happiness are very particular. Mm. Um, and wh when legislated or when a utopia becomes realized as opposed to speculative, I think we have a lot of historical examples of how that goes terribly, terribly awry. I think in Moore's utopia, the, the, at least the way that I write about it and certainly the way I, I teach about it is that the connection between the two parts, the first part being the critique of real world uh, Northern Europe, mm. um, and the second part being, well, there's an island that's out there, but you can't really get there, mm. and we don't really know how to get there, and it's this imagined world. Yeah. Um, and maybe, and, and the link between like here and now and this imagined world mm. is an imaginary ship voyage, but it's always 
not a real connection and it has it's not accessible it's not accessible it has to be an imaginative place because otherwise it becomes coercive Mm. yeah so that insisting i think on the realm of play i think is to me why utopian or speculative fiction more generally and maybe art even (laughs) um is so attractive yeah right i'm just going to see if this tea is starting to look Maybe so a bit. You know, here in Philadelphia, Philadelphia um, is a product of these trading economies that Moore and his friends were worried about. Philadelphia was founded by English Quakers who were very much interested in trying to build a settlement that, in their view, corrected the abuses that they saw in Massachusetts where they mm. saw um, Native peoples being treated quite badly. But so so, so the, they the founders of, of this place were themselves trying to kind of put into practice or realize a utopian project. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And I think a good part of many colonial projects need to be understood in that way and that isn't to make them sound better than they were Mm. Um, as we know you know when utopia when realized or when people attempt to find it it becomes quite coercive yeah William Penn was certainly not perfect in his dealings with native populations here the Lenape in particular but Mm. he did um, purchase all the land that he settled on and that was certainly a difference than had happened both uh, Virginia in the south and Massachusetts in the north so William Penn was he one of the Quakers? William this Penn, group of Quakers exactly, yeah, in. and um, we're sitting here at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, uh, it's named after William Penn. Um, it's all connecting up. Itself <laughs> is, um, you mm. know, literally Penn's Woods from the Latin. Mm. Um, so we are in a in a place that's deeply inspired by very old notions of utopian longing, and these were really coming out of a late medieval mystic. Um, tradition of really trying to listen for the divine and only being able to hear it by being humble. So there's a real sort of humility that's implied and a human fallibility in that, um, that I think... That's um, kind of surprising to me because I think, well, a utopia, at least if you imagine it being realized, is this extremely kind of like grand project. It's not modest at all. No, it isn't. So how did they see that as a conflict? Yes, I think they did, absolutely. Um, And they were also, you know, refugees in their time. Um, Mm -hmm. So Quakers and other so-called sects at this time throughout Europe were subject to pretty dangerous uh, persecution. Um, And I think it's that context of being forced migrants that, made the Quakers feel that they could take this unusually ambitious and not humble step of founding a new place mm-hmm. uh, on uh, Lenape territory. So you mentioned that um, they paid the Native Americans for their land. Is that in itself a kind of ecological gesture and I mean I'm curious in general like what's the what's the environmental dimension to their particular it's a really great question because what you see coming together at that moment are two very different ideas about um land tenure 
And it's something that Thomas More really was already addressing in what we were just talking about. Whereas yeah, so the commons and the privatized Exactly, right. So land. for Lenape, there was not a notion of an exclusive land tenure regime. Whereas Does tenure just mean like ownership? Exactly, okay. right? Yeah. It's yours. It's private property. Yeah. And once you have it, it's yours forever. There's a lot of really interesting research about these two very different systems of uh, land management and, and property systems basically coming into contact with each other. And they are uh, very different and really quite incommensurable in, in many profound ways. And there are certainly hybrid systems of having some land in common and some land held privately. Uh, we see that a lot uh, today, of course, with public lands. Is that still the case in Philadelphia? Well, I mean, public parks are public. And water all waterways are, in fact, public. So the riverbanks may be largely privatized, but the waterway up and down the river is public. Okay. So a lot of times, you know, I go with students, for example, on the Schuylkill River, and if it's someone's first time on the river, and we're in kayaks, and we're going between on the one side of the river, Bartram's Garden, which is public. Um, mm. It's the nation's oldest botanic garden. John Bartram was a Quaker, and et cetera, okay. et cetera. But what's on the opposite riverbank is um, the East Coast's largest refinery and an oil port. Oh, wow. um, and that riverbank is not public at all. It's, mm. it's heavily privatized and it's heavily militarized, in fact. So if you're on the public waters in your little boat and you go down the river, as you leave the area of Bartram's Garden, which is obviously public and it's a park, you start thinking, like, people say all the time, like, am I allowed to be here? Like, Mm. is this legal? Mm. Well, it's public water. And then at the same time, then security forces will come out in the power boats and sort of check out. And you think, oh, maybe I, maybe I am doing something wrong. But of course you're not. Mm. But you are made to feel as if you are. And then it becomes a, a question of when we talk about something being public, what do we mean? And how do we make sure it stays public? So to try and connect the sort of past and present, it sounds like one of the things you've been saying is that... Um, there are different conceptions of public land, public space, and that, you know, in the case of the the Native Americans and the, the early Quakers, there were these two, like, incommensurate ways of thinking about that system that yeah. came into conflict with each other, but that today as well, that's an example where actually incommensurate conceptions of public space are clashing. I think so. I mean, I think that these questions that to us, maybe, you know, like, oh, 1516 or 1683 or whatever, it seems like such a long time ago. But Mm. actually, these questions are totally with us today. Mm. Um, For me, that's been one of the upshots of working on this project. I feel like any idea that we're so much smarter than they were then, mm. um, I think. The very modest Quaker-like <laughs> I know, sentiment. sometimes I feel like I drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> but um, uh, it, but I, I definitely, I think working over these longer time horizons, it becomes pretty hard to mm. be so sanguine about where we're headed. Yeah. Well, Bethany Wigan, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was Bethany Wigan, a professor in the German department at the University of Pennsylvania. That's it for this episode. 
For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at How to Read Now. How to Read is produced by me, Milan Tolunen, and by me, Jess Engebretson. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.